evidence and answers. Studies are showing that Americans are wealthier, healthier, and have more leisure time, but are less happy. In fact, depression, especially among young people, is at record high rates. Why is this the case? How can we have a meaningful and happy life? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. J.P. Moreland, will discuss how God plays a major role in finding the answer to the depression that plagues today's youth. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, does belief in God make a difference in our lives? What if God does not exist? Why is it that we are healthier and wealthier than ever before, yet so many, the depression rate continues to rise? Well, to help us address some of these issues is Dr. J.P. Moreland. Dr. Moreland is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology there at Biola University. He earned his Ph.D. at the University of Southern California. He's a tremendous writer, contributed and written to over 95 books, including the one we're talking about today, The God Question, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, which is a textbook in many Christian universities across the world, In Search of Confident Faith, and another favorite of mine, Loving God with All Your Mind, and throughout his career, Dr. Moreland has pastored, co-planted three churches, spoken and debated on over 200 university campuses around the country. He served with Campus Crusade, or Crew, for over 10 years, and his ideas have been covered by both popular and religious and non-religious publications, including The New Scientist, Christianity Today, PBS's Closer to Truth, and World Magazine. And he was selected in 2016 as one of the 50 most influential living philosophers today. So, Dr. Moreland, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Well, it's a joy to be with you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we actually had you on about 10 years ago. Not sure you remember that, but it was a great interview, and we're looking forward to another great one. Well, so am I. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, well, we're talking about your book here, The God Question, An Invitation to a Life of Meaning. And I found it to be a fascinating book. And you state here in your opening chapter about the dilemma that we are facing not only in American culture but in Western culture, that many are wealthier and healthier and living longer lives and have more leisure time. But you're also stating that the statistics that many are less happy and that the depression rate, especially among young people, has risen. Why is that? Well, that's a really great question. I did a good bit of research on this, and in the first two chapters, my focus is, why can't we be happy? What's going on? Because as you pointed out, externally, we have more freedom. I mean, we have microwaves, and we don't have to slave over the dinner, making dinner if we don't want to, and we have all kinds of conveniences. But Two of the largest studies that have ever been done on Westerners, especially those who are in America, have indicated that as time has gone on, we are substantially, in some cases, ten times less happy than people in our grandparents' generation. 
And as you pointed out, anxiety is now the number one mental disorder, followed very closely by depression. Now, if anybody's listening and is anxious and depressed, I don't mean in any sense to demean you because I, I know what it's like to face those things. I'm merely trying to point out that these studies that have indicated the truth of our unhappiness have sought to figure out what is going on. And I think that the answers that are being given are half-truths because they're putting their finger on the fact that somehow we are not approaching life the way that we were made to function best. And they try to go on and say you should give yourself to something that's meaningful instead of living for pleasure or, uh, you know, a dose of happiness. The, re the real problem is that if there is no God, then there, it doesn't seem any real plausible way to make sense out of anything being objectively meaningful. Why is what Mother Teresa did any more meaningful than a person who just counts pennies that he's found his whole life? I mean, you know, whatever is true for you is true for you. And so the real problem is that, and I'll close with this, is that it is the emergence of a secularized culture that has caused the upswing in depression and anxiety and a loss of happiness because there is no meaning anymore. Yes, develop that a little bit. What do you mean that without God, you know, there really is no basis for objective meaning and a meaningful life? You yeah. know, I run into a lot right. of atheists who say, no, my life has meaning. You know, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I go out and party and have a good time. I mean, why do I need God? I mean, expand on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Let me illustrate it as I do in the book. Suppose I invited you to come to my house to play a game of call Monopoly. Mm -hmm. And I had the Monopoly board there, and then I had the remote control for the television. I showed you the refrigerator, and uh, I had a set of jacks where you could toss you know, the little ball up in the air and grab some jacks. So when it, I said, why don't you go first? And so you establish hotels all over the board, and you think this is going to be a quick game. And so when it's my turn, I dump the board upside down, and I pick up a jack. And you don't, you think, what the heck's going on? And so when it, you put the hotels back on the board, and, you know, you think you've trapped me, but again, I just wipe the board clean, and I go to the refrigerator and I get myself a little quick bite to eat and say it's your turn. Now, after a while, it would become obvious to you that it wouldn't matter what you did. And the reason is this. If the game as a whole is without purpose, the individual moves within the game are meaningless. And if the universe as a whole and the origin and history of both the human race and me individually is without some ultimate purpose, then what I find quote-unquote meaningful is, is utterly empty because some people might find it meaningful to be serial killers. Others might find it meaningful to be womanizers. Others might find it meaningful to try to make as much money as they can even if it requires harming other people. 
And there just is no way, objectively, to determine which path is most meaningful if life itself doesn't have a point to it. And the only way that you can make sense out of, or at least the best way, of life having a real purpose is that there is a God who made all this for a purpose and put us here to fulfill good, truthful, and wise purposes, one of which is to draw near to him and learn how to love others for his namesake. So that's why, I mean, you can't just have any worldview and just say, oh, by the way, I'm going to help myself to objective meaning, even though I think matters all there is. You know, that's cheating. You can't just help yourself to anything. But within a Christian worldview, goodness gracious, there is such a rich resource for there to be meaning and purpose to everything we do, even suffering can have purpose, redemptive purpose. It doesn't get any better than that. Some people, a common one I hear is that, well, the meaning of my life is to propagate the human species or, you know, leave the world a better place when I came. What do they mean? What do you mean better? Right. I'd like to know what better means. Yeah. And so one of the things that you're saying in your book is that, well, it's if you just push a little bit, right, and ask the meaning behind that. Right. There uh, you go. There you go. Yeah, that's right. So even those answers really don't answer the question. You're saying you got to push to the ultimate meaning. There's more behind that. Well, yeah. I mean, if you say I want to leave the world a better place, and then I say, well, would you mind telling me what better is? And you so as you give me an answer, well, then I'll say, well, why should anybody believe that? I mean, why that instead of uh, you know being a narcissist and to exist to propagate the human race? Uh, my question is, why not? exist to propagate cockroaches. I mean, there are certain ways that you can create environments where cockroaches flourish, and there are others that harm cockroach multiplication. Why human beings instead of cockroaches? You're assuming that for humans to exist and live is a good thing. But where did that come from? So I tend to think that atheism is a very bleak view of the world, and it really is inadequate to provide rational justification for purpose in life and objective meaning. Right. And another point you make in the book, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, I mean, you talk about the culture of narcissism that has engulfed our nation. Tell us what do you mean by the culture of narcissism, and and how did it come about? Very (laughs) good. These are great questions. Well, Frederick Nietzsche made the statement that God is dead. And what he meant by that was not that there was a God, but he no longer exists. What he really meant was that culture, the power centers of culture, have turned secular in Europe. And by that he meant that the concept of God is no longer carrying any authority in our European universities, in politics, or in even shaping the way people live. Other social forces are doing that. And so Nietzsche predicted that people would still need something bigger than they were to give their life some significance. And so given that there is no God and we can't draw significance from giving ourselves to a supreme being, what people will do is to turn to the state, and they will get their meaning in life by serving the government and the state. 
By the way, that's why people on the political left, which are survey after survey has shown to be more and more secular, the further left you go, that's why they're so outraged if you reject their view of the world, because it's the thing that gives them meaning in the first place. So you're not just saying, well, I don't agree with your policies. You're saying your attempt to establish meaning for your life is bankrupt. Well, once people got the idea that it was not in their best interest to serve the state, guess what they turned to? Serving me. So narcissism flourished in the soil of having no other place to look to to get my source of happiness in life. And it was also the case that the second contributor was the fact that when people came to believe that science was the only way to know truth about reality, all the questions that matter to us most, uh, what's right and wrong, is there meaning in life, is there life after death, is there a God, what am I, those can't be answered anymore, and so the search for truth becomes irrelevant because nobody can know what it is. Thus, the search for truth was replaced by the satisfaction of desire, and that is now what guides people's search in life. They want their desires met. So you have a combination now of a culture that says there's really no place to turn for meaning except yourself, and when you're looking for meaning for your own life, don't bother with truth because you can't scientifically test any of that. Look for your desires to be satisfied. And so we get people now that are now, there is a plague of narcissism that is so pervasive that it is now called almost an endemic by some sociologists that keep their eye on this thing. Yes, and, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the answer to this, but, you know, you touched on it also. You state that happiness has been redefined. Yes, it has. How has it been redefined, and what is the true definition of happiness? Right, right, right. Well, since the late 1800s in Europe and since the early 1900s in America, a new definition of happiness arose that was never held in the history of the Western world, and I'm talking about the Greek philosophers and the Old and New Testaments and secular people who thought about ethics. And what the new definition is, happiness is an experience of really intense excitement or pleasure or sort of being psyched. Or, or I mean, like if your team wins or if you, your daughter has a baby and you're a grandparent now or you get a raise at, at work, that makes you happy. And what that means is they make me really kind of feel a lot better about life and kind of excited, and, and I'm sort of uh, upbeat and adrenalized. Well, you know, as good as that is, and I'm not against that within perspective, you can't live for it because if you make that kind of happiness your aim, you're going to find less of it than you would if you made something else your aim and let happiness, in that sense, be a byproduct. That makes that kind of happiness is a horrible goal for life, but it's a wonderful byproduct of doing something else. And that's pursuing the real meaning of happiness, which was held by all the ancients through the Middle Ages and up until the 1800s. And namely, to be happy is to live a wise, character-filled, 
virtuous life. It is to become a good person that knows how to approach life and live flourishingly because of wisdom and kindness and and character-filled virtue. And that's the person to envy. If you know somebody that you say, man, I would love to have had that person as a dad or a mom, because they're just, when you're around them, they just ooze goodness and kindness and, and wisdom. Now, that's the happy person, and you can be sad. You could be in pain and still be happy in that sense. And so that's basically what happened. And I need to make the point here, and I'll, I'll close with this, but in the book, The God Question, people kept coming up to me and saying, do you have a book that I could give as a tool to my uncle because he's always raising questions against the faith at Thanksgiving, and I don't know what to tell him. And so the book is the book I wrote. Finally, I got tired of being asked that, so I wrote the thing myself, and it's ideally suited as a handout to give to a thoughtful unbeliever that's pushing back, but at least would be willing to read something. It also helps, I think, believers get in touch with why this matters so much and why they need to be committed instead of treating their faith as a hobby and why it's important to know why you believe what you believe. And so that's contained in the book, and that's what it's about. Yeah, and I think understanding, you know, the true definition of happiness and what we are to pursue is really important. And I think that's what our founding fathers, that's what they meant in the Declaration when they said, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They didn't mean pursuing things that make you feel good. No, no. That you're absolutely right. They meant pursuing your understanding of human flourishing, and they were. Ta- I mean, they realized that the Baptists had a certain view of that that was a little different than the Episcopalians, and they were conceiving of happiness in, in a virtue ethic approach. They weren't thinking of it as pleasure, though. Though nobody's against pleasure in the right context. Don't get me wrong; it's a wonderful thing as long as it's not the goal of your life. But it's much bigger than that. And, I, and you're right, the founders were right where the ancients were. Yes, and so I can see it's a dangerous thing when you have a narcissistic culture living to please self, pursuing that false definition of happiness, then really you end up in a really a unhealthy culture that starts to unravel itself. Oh, my, you've nailed it. And, you know, you don't have to trust us. Just look it up online and look at the statistics. Google the decline of happiness in Western culture, and you'll see the statistics for yourself. But the real point is I start the book this way because I'm trying to show that this God question thing is a big deal. It's not just this small little thing for those people that like religious things. Oh, no everybody has got to face this question because it is the biggest question that settles all a lot of other questions and it's the abandonment of taking the god question seriously that has led to the problem now the next section of the book i say so we desperately need god but that doesn't mean there is one so the question now is there a god and if so what god is he And there's where I have a section where I lay out, I think in an accessible way, 
my case for why I believe in a personal God and then why I go from there to believing in particular in the, in the Christian and biblical God and in Jesus as the resurrected Son of God. And I provide in that second part of the book evidence for that to show that this is true, not just because we need it, but because there's independent evidence for it. Yes, we're going to get to that soon. But I want to ask you another question, because that yes. you know, beginning part of your book is really fascinating to me. It really draws you in there and really addressing the problems and the issues that we're facing. And you state another one here, that the fear of death is creating anxiety in all of us. How is that oh. so? Well... Last night, I got a phone call from someone who lives on the East Coast. He's not a believer, and he had just turned a birthday where he's an older person now. And he said to me, two or three times a week, I wake up in the middle of the night, and I say to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm 70 such and such. I'm going to die soon. And he said, I was talking to a lawyer and we got to talking about this subject, and he said the same thing was happening to him. He was waking up a couple of times a week with staring the fact that death is getting closer. And the reason it's a fearful thing is that people, they don't have any hope that makes real sense that there's anything beyond death. They may wish there were, but wishes aren't going to be enough to sustain a life in the face of death. You need to know there's life after death. And people don't know that anymore. But by going to the resurrection of Jesus and reading very carefully a number of near-death experiences that have been carefully vetted and analyzed uh, that are consistent with the Word, it becomes beyond any reasonable doubt that there is a heaven and a hell and that life after death is real. The other thing I think is that people only get exposed to death now by watching movies or television, and they don't have the experience of people dying at home around the family and washing the body and preparing it for burial. People typically die uh, surrounded by healthcare professionals, and so we're distant from death, and when you're not around something regularly, you get scared of it. So I think that's contributed to it as well. But the issue of having no hope makes people afraid of death. Yes, and that's a very important thing. You know, you, when I talk to a lot of young people, they say, well, I'll, I'll think about it when I'm past 50. Yeah. But still, that is an important question that even young people need to address. Why is that? Well, the reason is that your view of whether there's an afterlife and what it's about, what separates me from experiencing the riches of heaven someday and trying to come to grips with that, that is not an add-on to a life that you're going to live independently of your views on that. It doesn't work that way. You will order your life according to what you think the purpose of life is. And if you think life doesn't have a purpose, then you will be inclined to go from one random experience to another and you will end up being kind of a listless person that doesn't have any kind of purpose. And so for young people to understand that there is a knowable purpose in life and that it involves a living God 
that is the God of the Bible that you can know is real and that this isn't going to stop. It's going to continue on and get better and better after we pass away. With that vision, then it impacts the way that you approach life now. And so I think it helps orient a teenager, let's say, or a middle schooler, to a certain way of seeing life that then a, a certain set of activities and practices follow from that. That's why it's so important. Yes, very well said. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. So if you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Use our search engine for available resources everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrat. Oh, 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 oh,